0: Lilium Rivera is an award-winning writer of young adult books. Her first novel, The Education of Margot Sanchez, established Lilium as a fresh go-to voice for YA fiction. Her latest, Dealing in Dreams, is a dystopian novel that follows an all-girl crew as they fight for survival. Like her characters, Lilium has faced hard choices about who she is, what she wants, and what she's willing to sacrifice to get it.
1: Lillian, welcome back to New York City. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm really happy to be back home. So my fellow nerd, what did you read growing up? Oh, man. I read all the coming-of-age Judy Bloom books, but then I also read A Clockwork Orange and The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, Frankenstein. I kind of liked all those things. So I was like, I would read everything and anything. Did you have a favorite Latina character or author? Gosh, I didn't get into anyone who was a Latina author until I was in college. And that would be Sandra Cisneros. Mm-hmm. And then Juno Diaz's collection of short stories called Drowned. That kind of like woke me up and made me think, OK, the possibility of me being able to write, yep. to be a fiction author, even though it took years after that. But Had so. it
0: occurred to you between your childhood and college that you were reading books where the characters
1: didn't represent you in full? It felt to me... Like, I was reading science fiction mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because it was so outside of my own childhood, you know, growing <laughs> up in the Bronx. So I was like, wow, this is how, what's it like in Wyoming? Like, you know, so yeah. and I was accepting of it. Like, I was just like, OK, cool. This is a different life. You know, I was really aware of the fact that there weren't any Puerto Ricans or any Latinos in any of these uh, books, but... I was still accepting of it Mm -hmm. until I got to college. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's only three. (laughs) (laughs) Like now there's a little bit more, but not much.
0: The early part of your career is focused on nonfiction journalistic writing.
1: Yeah, because there weren't that many authors that I could turn to and say, oh, I want to be that person. When I was growing up, I was like, well, I could be a journalist like I loved writing. I knew that was the only way I could cope with all kinds of stuff. And so I decided to become a journalist because an English teacher saw something in my writing and he knew that I had some sort of talent and he forced me into the high school newspaper. And then I started, (laughs) yeah. And then I just started, you know, doing the journalism thing, got an internship at Rolling Stone, worked at Latina Magazine, the first women's lifestyle, bilingual lifestyle magazine. And I just went that route. So it was easy for me to like focus on other people. I didn't have to really focus on myself in a way. What skills did you take from that period of time that you still use today? Oh, deadlines. (laughs) I don't mess around. (laughs) I hit my deadlines because that's, you know, if you're a journalist, you have to hit those deadlines if you're producing daily content. So to me, it's like journalism really instilled deadlines. And my words are not like jewels. You know, I just produce it. I'm not afraid to have people like workshop my stuff. I produce and I rework and rework.
0: Tell me about the moment you decided to try writing fiction
1: professionally? One of the magazines I was working at, Folded, and I had... That's a, so dark, Lily. I know, I was like, it's journalism. You know, you just bounce back, because there's always another magazine. But it happened to me, and then I was just like, oh, I have a break. This is an opportunity for me. So I decided I was going to write a novel. I wrote a novel um, very quickly. In 90 days, I wrote it, and then I rewrote it and rewrote it until it became The Education of Margot Sanchez.
0: And then you sold it. And then in your own mind, you became a professional writer.
1: No, I felt I was a writer in the sense because I had bylines. Mm -hmm. But when I became an author, that was when I sold that book. Honestly, when I saw the book in the library, that's when I felt like I was that it was real. Any kid like myself could just, you know, my younger self could have just gone to the library and asked for that book.
0: As you were writing Marco Sanchez, were you also maintaining a side hustle? I'm always hustling.
1: <laughs> if that's key for, for survival, it's always hustling. You know, I used to freelance. I don't freelance anymore, but I always used to freelance. I was writing fashion copy, fashion editor, um, entertainment editor, celebrity interviews, all that stuff. So I, I'm, oh, I was always doing that while I was like, you know, having the book come out. How did you land on YA as a genre? It was really easy for me to capture that voice. I felt like every time I would write any kind of fiction, it would always come from that young person's point of view. Mm -hmm. And I really love it. It's exciting to me. It's like the discovery of first, the first time you kiss, the first time you feel shame, the first, you know, all these like firsts. And I love being able to like continue working in that genre. Oh, my God.
0: My hands are sweating because there's no amount of money you could pay me to go back to that period of time. You
1: don't want to think about that. It's like, yeah, no, I love it. I love being able to, like, mine that. And the great thing is I like, speak to a lot of young kids now whenever I'm traveling for books. They're so hopeful and eager. And and yes, they get it right off the bat. If you're able to capture mm-hmm. that voice, they'll they'll love you. And if you don't, then they'll know that you're fake. <laughs> Maybe that's why it makes me so scared. But I didn't realize of YA readers are adults. Yes. Which makes sense. I mean, I read a lot of it. There's a lot of experimentation in YA. There's a lot of literary, beautiful prose being written in young adults. So I totally get it, why a lot of adults are reading it.
0: If I asked you to curate a bookshelf of young adult writers you'd like to be compared to or grouped with, what five living authors would be on that list?
1: Wow. I'm a shout out. Matt de la Peña, Meg Medina, and I'll also want to shout out some fantasy authors or speculative, you know, people who write science fiction, like Soraida Cordova, and um, I would even put like Angie Thomas in there, Danielle Clayton, all these amazing authors that are have come up just recently, and they're all like having the same kind of conversations. I feel. I
0: mean, Angie's book got options, The Hate You Give, before she even wrote it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People
0: just liked the idea that much.
1: Right. I mean, this is a great it's a great moment. Like people are they're craving those kind of stories. Like Mm -hmm. young people are craving that. You know, we want to be seen on the big screen. They want to see themselves on the covers of these books. It's really exciting for me to be a part of that.
0: Dealing in Dreams has been described as the Outsiders meets Mad Max and it centers around an all girl gang in a near future dystopia.
1: Yes. (laughs) What inspired this idea? You know, like I mentioned before, I grew up reading A Clockwork Orange, which Mm -hmm. is all about violence and these young boys. And I watched uh, The Warriors, this cult film, um, and about gangs in New York, uh, gangs of New York, you know, all these like films. And I always in my head imagine, but what would that look like if it were girls? What would Mm -hmm. that look like if it's only young girls in high school, you know, living that life of violence, um, like kind of incorporating these male traits and I wanted to write that book. It was a book that I would have loved to have read when I was young. And near future. Yes, because in the future, girls are going to (laughs) rule. That's my future. (laughs) I know. But I
0: think when we say that we imagine like a utopia, not a dystopia.
1: For me, for dealing in dreams, I really want to kind of explore this idea of what does that look like when only women are allowed to have all the decisions, to make all Mm -hmm. the decisions and men are subservient. So let's push that idea of like, oh, that sounds utopian, Mm -hmm. but is it really? And who really has the ultimate answer? I feel like power corrupts everyone. So for Nala, my, you know, my 16-year-old lead character, she really believes that world. She believes in that idea of women can have all the power. All I have to do is use my fist to get to the top. And we follow her journey as to to all these decisions that she makes that are kind of like flawed.
0: It's amazing how quickly, having read it, you were able to set up the world and how things that are unique and true only to that world very quickly become normalized. So for someone who hasn't read the book, what are some elements of the world that you built in that are only true there?
1: Well, my favorite is bodegas, right? Everyone knows what a bodega (laughs) is. If you're in New York, you know what a bodega is, like a corner store. You know, you go there, you get your sandwiches, your breakfast sandwich, and, you know, a soda. I grew up with those. Right. But in my world, bodegas are really bodegas and they're nightclubs where the gangs hang out. Only girl gangs get to hang out and you can, quote unquote, rent a boy, a papi. That was taken from a documentary that I watched in Japan that young professional women can rent boys or rent men, you know, to speak to them, I assume, um, <laughs> I, you know. I'm not speculating. But I wanted to create that world. What would bodegas look like? You know, we have robotic piñatas. We have códigos, which are just like their connections to the server and the server, you know, sort of like your Facebook or your cell phone. But they are called códigos. I mean, I had a blast just kind of creating these worlds and just playing around with with words.
0: In the dealing in dreams world, vulnerability not allowed. Anathema. How much of that was pulling from your own
1: life? Yes. I love this idea of you have to be hard all the time. Like, I think I because I grew up in the Bronx and because I grew up in the housing projects, there wasn't a lot of room for being soft. You come in always hard. And, you know, being soft is being vulnerable. And you don't have time for that because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a harsh world and you got to make it and all those kind of like cliches. But in a lot of ways, it's it's the way how I grew up. right? And I would
0: argue that the softer a kid you naturally are, the earlier and the more often that message is given to you.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And the weird thing is I grew up, it's two sisters and my three brothers, but I learned like, oh, you have to be hard for my brothers, you know. So I love that idea. So I wanted to really write about that. And I feel for a lot of young people of color, there isn't room for failure. So there's this added burden of you have to be hard and you have to succeed no matter what, at what cost. Hey, since you like our show, I want to take a minute
0: to tell you about something new and exciting. Think about all the people you know, then all the people that they know. All of those relationships form a complicated, interconnected web. Wonder Media Network's brand new show, Web of Women, dot Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club.
1: Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Gives into what
0: makes us who we are as individuals and communities. The host, Jenny Kaplan, starts things off by interviewing four women she knows from different parts of her life. Then each of those women picks someone to interview, and so on. They talk about politics, gender, religion, and other facets of identity. Web of Women is a new kind of podcast that illuminates the intersection of relationships, identity, and community. Check out and subscribe to Web of Women, spelled W-M-N, wherever you listen to podcasts. You've written about how when you arrived at Binghamton University for college, you were suddenly surrounded by people of much greater means yes. than yourself. Part of the way that you coped with moving between those worlds was by drinking. Can you tell me a little bit about
1: that? Sure. I mean, I you know, I've been pretty public you know about my drinking and being you know I'm sober for close to 20 years and I've written about being an alcoholic so I feel like when I went to college it was the first time I was away from home Mm -hmm. it was the first time I was away from the projects for my family you know my family lives all in the same vicinity in the same neighborhood and so I felt very alone and that was again that that burden of succeeding right I couldn't go back to my family and say, I feel alone or I feel isolated. There's no one here that I could really talk to or I'm broke. (laughs) You know, it was not that none of that was happening. So how did I cope with? I coped through trying to fit in and trying to fit in was really through drinking. And that was really when I found out that I had a serious drinking problem. Like it hit me in college um, and it took a really long time after college for me to like get help. Because it's not something that you really talk about with your family. You
0: came home with a black
1: eye. Oh, yeah. And, From college, yeah. And
0: the joke was that, or not the joke, but the, the sort of rationale in the house was that you must have an abusive boyfriend.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I have family members telling, like, insisting. They were like, give me the name of the guy who did that to you. And I was like, "I no, there is no guy. I did this to myself. <laughs> but they could not, there was no way of them to fathom the idea that I could not stop drinking. That wasn't even a possibility, but a possibility of some guy hitting me, yes. And I feel like a lot of young Latinas have to go through this. Like, if there's such a huge shame about even admitting that you have this problem because you're, you're supposed to be ladylike because there's these roles that you're supposed to be, you know, exuding. You're not supposed to drink. You're supposed to have ladylike drinking, you know. And it took a long time, even with a black guy. It took a long time for me to admit that, okay, I cannot have a drink. But it wasn't just your family that didn't notice. I mean, even after you got married, your husband didn't no. realize. I, I knew how to hide that stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I would just take shots and then go brush my teeth afterwards and when i when i finally admitted to him that i had a drinking problem he was floored he didn't know he was like oh, what are you talking about and then it sort of slowly came into focus like oh but that's why those bottles were always empty or that's why we kept on buying more and more i was really really great at hiding all of that
0: it strikes me in your retelling of the story though that the way it starts with him is that he he realizes more your depression than mm-hmm. anything else and that somehow your instinct isn't to admit the drinking initially. It's rather to pin it on the
1: marriage and say that you're unhappy in the marriage. Oh, yeah, for sure. If everything's falling apart, then I can can figure out a way of uh, an excuse for it. Like, oh, then it's probably this relationship. Or it's probably because I moved from New York to L.A. It's L.A. You know, it was always something else until I was, you know, until I really did feel like I was on a corner and I could not hide the fact that I was, Falling apart. There was no way around it. So, it, in a great way, you know, if someone asks me, "Oh, how you doing?" There's sometimes I'll just tell them how I'm doing. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I can't hide the fact that I'm, I'm sad, or I'm like, oh, I'm feeling down, or whatever. I'm just, I'm honest about it to the point that because it'll save me. Like I can't hide behind this pretend. You know, it's easy to hide behind all that stuff because of Instagram and social media. For sure, I buy into it. But sometimes I'm like low. Yeah, no, know a, a
0: public success and a private mess.
1: Yes. I and I buy into it. Believe me, because I love Instagram. I love pretty pictures of, you know, I like to document that life. Um, I think positive is good. But I also, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I also talk about like, oh, this I have to write another book. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, like I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: 20 years into this, have you talked to your family about it?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I talk to them in the sense that they know that I don't drink, everybody does. Um, in my family, they all know they, they are aware when I'm in a family of functions that I'm not going to drink, but I just it's not a topic that anyone talks about, you know. And this is the same with in general, if I talk about it in public, you know, people will come up to me afterwards or they send me an email and say, Hey. I have a friend or I'm struggling and I will gladly tell them my experience about Mm -hmm. it. So it's it felt really liberating to write about it. And it felt scary as well. Of course. Yeah. But I'm glad I did it. I'm really open about it.
0: Your first book, The Education of Margot Sanchez. You wrote both the first book and the second book each in 90 days.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I, um, what? Yeah, that's crazy. There's an author who, who's my mentor or used to be my mentor, um, Al Watt, and he does this thing called the 90 Day Novel. And I took his class, his workshop in L.A., and it really is like every single day he just sort of like you write every single day for 90 days until you have a finished draft. I mean, by the end of that draft, you know, depending on how many words you produce every day, you will have a full novel. And so I've done that for both education of Margot sanchez and for dealing in dreams mind you i mean the rough it's a rough draft it's terrible but it's a great skeleton for me to start and then the the rewrite process takes years for me okay. you know so it took it took years for both books to like just finally get it to where i liked it but uh, you know producing content or writing fairly quickly i tried just to get out of my way and just write it and let it be I would
0: find writing a, a book in 90 days impressive for anyone, but having just written my first nonfiction book as a mom, right? that's the part where I don't know how you crank that out in 90 days.
1: Because I was a mom, it felt even that much more pressure to produce in a way because I didn't want, you know, there was a lot of people who were coming up to me, especially for dealing in dreams, when I was writing that book or rewriting that book, were like, "Oh, well, now you got two kids." You might as well just forget about that lifelong dream. That's the quickest
0: way to get me to do anything.
1: (laughs) Right. right. It's like spite. Like I'm all about rage writing. (laughs) Like let's let's just rage write all day. (laughs) I'm like, you telling me I can't do it? All right, here I go. (laughs) So, you know, for me, that's just... That was the way it was for both those books. But it does was, that
0: mean you also have to be less precious? Like, does that mean you're standing in the grocery line writing? Does it mean oh, you're yeah, at no. soccer it's, practice?
1: It's me in my car. I can tell you how many times I've written in my car. I, like, I will have my laptop. I'm waiting for someone to get out of practice, and I'll just be writing. In my You know, I'll find the library. This is the best thing is to find the lo- the nearest library because I, I don't like to go to Starbucks a lot, you know, and all those kind of coffee places. I just want to go to a library and just work. And so I'll find a library nearby and I'll just stay there. I
0: found though my home is lethal for me because there's a part of me that's like I should be folding laundry. I should be
1: loading the dishwasher. <laughs> I don't want to do any of those things ever. <laughs> ever.
0: But there's there's a part of me that's like none of the like none of the stuff I want to do can get done until these things are done. So yeah. I've had to learn to just kick myself out of the house.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. No, I could write with everyone talking to me in the kitchen and asking me for things, and I will just continue. As I'll be nodding, yes, and I'll just keep writing. Because I just, there's no way, there's no time. I, I don't have time to waste.
0: <laughs> it feels like a lot of writers spend the bulk of their time avoiding writing.
1: Yeah. And so I wonder, <laughs> what do you do with that time? I go to museums I know it sounds corny, but I I do I art (laughs) feeds you know so to me if I go to a museum I that feeds my fiction if I just take a walk you know you always have to be observing people so I just need to walk and and watch people you know New York is great for that LA not as much but I, I find ways to do that I like to go see movies and watch bad bunny You know, if anybody wants to buy me a ticket to Bad Bunny, I would go. That's a character study I want. I know.
0: I hear a lot of writers say that one of the most critical parts of becoming a better writer is becoming a better reader.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. If you're not reading, how are you going to be a writer? I'm constantly reading. You have to find out what's happening, you know, what people are writing. And you also just have to be informed if I want to be a poet, I'm going to read all the poets. You know, I'm going to read the contemporary ones and the ones who who made history. So then I could start being a poet. You know, start writing poetry. It's the same way with the young adult. It's the same way with literary fiction. I'm just going to read as much as I can so then I could, you know, get better at my craft.
0: The education of Margot Sanchez is often compared to Pretty in Pink. Dealing in Dreams is compared to The Outsiders. It feels like a lot of your work is taking the cultural references that we grew up with and reimagining them with people like us included.
1: Yes, that's what I want. (laughs) I want all those things that I kind of grew up with watching and imagining myself as the title of those, you know, of those books. I want to recreate those, you know, into my world, you know, a world that's only mostly people of color. So Yes to The Outsiders, yes to Pretty in Pink, you know, coming-of-age stories. So which worlds do you still want to recreate? Oh, man, I want to do aliens coming down and in invading the city. And what does that look like for young people of color? Because, you know, we, maybe you've seen Attack the Block, which is a great movie. And there's the Star Wars, all these like, you know, my, you know, all the movies that Tom Cruise stars in, (laughs) right? He's done all of them. And I'm just like, I want to see what people of color would look like. What would that look like if that happened in your city, in your neighborhood? Why? What do you think about it would be different? Oh, man. I just think about Los Angeles itself, where I live right now is right next to a high school. A lot of, you know, brown and black kids come to that high school or, you know, come in like through the buses. And then it's originally an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And then there's a lot of sneaker stores all lined on Fairfax, so a lot of young hip-hop, you know, people just, you know, lining up for these sneakers. So there's this really interesting thing that's happening in that neighborhood of people who maybe don't have have some money or don't have money or spending a lot of money on sneakers. Then Orthodox, you know, Jewish young girls or boys who don't talk to any of these kids. And it's all in there. What if an alien invasion happen in that neighborhood.
0: I feel like this is meta commentary on gentrification.
1: Oh, yeah. I feel like that's (laughs) all I talk about. Like, it's like, yeah, future gentrification. (laughs) What does that look like? I'm constantly thinking about history of buildings and the imprints of that history. And what does that look like in the future? So for kids, they're inheriting all that. I want to ask you one more question about Margot, which is
0: in it, there is part of what you're grappling with is she's always been la princesa Mm -hmm. and then she has her fall from grace. Right. Ah, That feels like an almost universal Latina experience. Mm, mm, mm. When did it happen for you?
1: When did I have my fall from grace? I mean, were you ever princesa? (laughs) I was never princesa. Not in my family because it was too many of us. I was always the really super shy, quiet one that's Everyone else around them was sort of taking up a lot of space. I feel for me like the Latinx experience is us navigating these all these different worlds. And it's a very, like, American story, right? And I'm constantly writing about this American Latinx story. is just navigating all types of, you know, welcoming or unwelcoming spaces, speaking Spanish, not speaking Spanish, loving, you know, Jay Lower or not. <laughs> so, you know, to me, it's, that's all. It's a very American story. You know, it's coming of age, finding your voice, destroying monsters. <laughs>
0: I love it. Lilium, thank you so much. Thank
1: you. It was great.
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle, Now the podcast is owned and executive produced by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me. Maria Muriel was the sound designer on this episode. We want to hear from you. Tell us who you want to hear from and how you're making the show a part of your life. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Yeah.